Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Teenagers who everybody was so worried didn't know how to have a relationship in person and that all they ever did was get on social media. They were in agony about not being physically with their friends, right? Clearly, they care about being with their friends in person or they wouldn't be this upset, right? And um, they're also digital natives, though, in a way that a lot of adults are not. So that might end up being a protective factor for them because the rest of us have all had to learn how to use some technology that we mostly were not familiar with. I mean, as it happens, I used to use Zoom in my work quite a bit. So, you know, I was more familiar with it. And I'm sure you as a podcaster, you're familiar with (laughs) a lot of things, right? But not everybody had that advantage that we had. I think that when we can interact with people in person again, we will fall into each other's arms with joy, (laughs) having washed our hands. (laughs) I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. 
the eucalyptus fiber upper adds next level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's a l l b i r d s.com code SUPER24. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lydia, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I don't even remember how I came across your book. Um, it either showed up in my Amazon recommendations based on my reading or some newsletter that uh, I was reading. But when I saw that there's a book about friendship and the fact that nobody had ever researched this, I was like, oh, my God, this is such a, a fascinating subject, considering that it's such an integral part of all of our lives. So when I want to start with what I think is a very fitting question, given the subject matter of your book, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Oh, my goodness. OK, uh, <laughs> um, I no one's asked me that yet. I was I had an interesting experience in high school. I grew up in Center City, Philadelphia. And I went to high school out in the suburbs. So I was a reverse commuter. And um, I, um, so a lot of the kids in my high school had been at this school already because it was a K through 12 private school. And so coming in in ninth grade, there were a bunch in ninth grade, but so I was an outsider at the beginning. Um, although one of my closest friends from the city was there with me. And, um, and it was, it was an adjustment, but I, I felt, so I was lonely. There's a little moment where I describe that in the book. Uh, at times I just didn't feel like I fit in. And the thing that was silly was that my family was a comfortable middle-class family. My parents were both lawyers, but they had been part of a move in the 1960s to, live in the cities and to renovate old houses. And that's, you know, quite common now, but it was less common then. A lot of people had gone out, uh, similar kinds of families mostly lived in the suburbs. Um, and so the people at this high school in the suburbs just kind of didn't know what to do with us <laughs> kids from the city. And they thought that we were very different from them, but of course we really weren't. Uh, and they were quite terrified at the idea of coming into our houses in the city. Um, of course, by the time I was a senior in high school, 
coming into our houses in the city was the coolest thing that everybody <laughs> wanted to do. They wanted to come to parties in the city. And, um, but, uh, but it was so high school was an adjustment. It took time for me to feel like I was part of the group and that I fit in, but I did. Um, and I was, you know, I was that kid with good grades and getting, you know, doing lots of, um, lots of activities. And so by the end of high school, I, um, I was actually president of the entire school though. So clearly I did end up fitting in and becoming, um, accepted. I, the, the reason I was president though, is that I was actually elected vice president, but the, the boy who was elected president got caught drinking beer in the parking lot and, uh, lost his job <laughs> as president. So I, <laughs> I, um, I had everything then I was president and vice president. And, uh, um, and so, um, so high school, you know, it was, uh, it was not the best time of my life, but it was, but it was fine. I made lots of good friends and, um, and I still see some of them. Too bad that doesn't work that like that with our actual presidency. <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that this is really fascinating to me. One of the things you say at the very beginning of a book, at the book is that a friendship is an organism that shifts its shape across our lifespans, according to our abilities and our availability. In other words, how, uh, in other words, according to how much we open ourselves up to its possibilities. Now, mm -hmm. the reason that struck me in particular is because you mentioned your experience of high school. My parents uprooted me right after my freshman year of high school. And um, I know that you've done this to your son as well. And you know yeah. firsthand what a miserable experience that is for a kid at that age. Um, but for me, I never managed to adapt. Like I always saw the second high school I went to. It, it's funny. I'm in touch with people from the first high school that I went to in ninth grade um, mm -hmm. because we grew up in Texas and we lived there for seven years. And then we moved to California. So I'd always saw the second high school literally as a pit stop. Um, the funny thing is my best friend who, uh, who's, you know, I was at the best man at his wedding. I went to high school with him. He's two years younger than the second high school, but we didn't become such good friends until 20 years after we graduated. So I wonder what is the impact of that? Because my sister is the polar opposite. She's had that same group of friends uh, so much so that her bridesmaid party was like 10 people because she's maintained all these friends from high school. Uh, and so I wonder, what is the impact of that on a kid and their ability to form friendships? Well, ex as you discovered, so is your sister older or younger? And how old she's was she younger. when she moved? She's so five she years apart. We're uh, five, years, she's five years younger. So she literally, to her, Riverside is home. To me, I told my parents, I was like, if you sold this house and moved to the beach, I wouldn't care. Yeah. <laughs> So, right. That's the, the fundamental difference there would, of course, be that she had these very formative years all in that same place through middle school and high school, it sounds like. And you got moved yeah. in the middle of high school. And that's just hard. It's, it, it sucks. <laughs> it's, um, mm -hmm. it's not that anybody, it's not that no one can do it successfully, but it is difficult. And the reason, uh, but it is interesting to me that you did only one year in the first high school and three in the second, and yet it always felt like a pit stop, even there you were there three times as long. Yeah. It it um it's not that way necessarily for everyone. I mean it it some people would make the move and then of you know, it might take a year and then they find a new group and they, you know, they start to feel more accepted. But one of the things that's true in middle school and in high school and kind of in early adolescence, which is where you still are at the end of ninth grade, is you are so 
hyper aware of your um, forming identity, right? Who you're going to become, how you're going to be that person. And your friends and your social life have everything to do with that. And you are so strongly tied to the friends that you have. And so leaving them feels just devastating. And it is, um, and it sounds like that's what happened to you. You just never felt like you fit in. But mm-hmm. the one question would be, how hard did you try uh, yeah. in the new place, right? Because teenagers often <laughs> then <laughs> decide yeah. to hide in their room. And, you uh-huh. know, um, one of my kids, when we moved to Hong Kong, uh, which is what you're referring to in the middle son, he was younger than you, but he... He was so, so upset at the prospect of leaving his friends. and the, But the older one, who was 12, so he did seventh and eighth grade in Hong Kong, he would go to school and come back and pretty much spend the rest of the time in his room. And we mm-hmm. would say, well, but it wasn't that he wasn't getting invitations and, you know, hadn't made any friends, but he just was, he he just didn't sort of have the inclination or the energy or the the bravery, courage, I guess, to put himself out there and to develop these relationships with these new kids. Because it's hard. It's hard to do. And if they already have friends, even if they've only known each other one year, you feel like such an outsider, which is how I felt when I, even though I went to a high school that, um, I mean, my elementary school ended at eighth grade. I was in one school from first grade through eighth grade, and then the other one for ninth through twelfth, and nobody was staying where I was. Everyone had to go elsewhere. But um, but you just, you have to make your way as a new person in a new place. And generally, kids who have had to move around a lot through childhood really do mm-hmm. suffer from that. They don't, um, they it's harder for them to make friends. I mean, one of my friends was in a military family and I think she went to something like 10 schools in 10 years. And yeah. And she, she doesn't really have, she has one friend from high school that she's still Mm -hmm. in touch with where she was the longest, you know, um, at the end in Florida. And, and she just was ever the new kid. And anytime you would start to get to know someone, then people, then you leave or they leave or, and it's, so I think it's not to say that families shouldn't move if mm-hmm. the jobs require it. Of course, sometimes they really do. That was what happened yeah. with us and probably what happened with you. But I do think that adults need to recognize how disruptive it can be for kids, especially if it's not in one of the kind of change years. So going into sixth grade or ninth grade is easier than going into 10th or God forbid, 11th or 12th even, right? I mean, there are kids who change schools just for 12th grade and, Uh and I really feel for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, my parents moved around pretty much up until my dad's a college professor and he got his teaching position at UC Riverside when I was a sophomore in high school. So by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I lived in Australia, Canada, Texas. Now I tell my parents, I was like, you know what? You dragged me around the world for my entire childhood. And now you're shocked that I want to see more of it. This is all your, <laughs> this is your fault, not mine. Uh, but one thing I wonder, so let me give you some more context about Texas, because I think you made a really interesting observation of why one year in that high school versus three in the other <clears throat> had so much more of an impact. First off, I had this amazing music teacher. Music programs in Texas are a big deal. I you know, was headed to make Allstate Band in Texas. Um, but I'd also been with those friends since I was in the third grade. Yeah. And so that, I think, was why it, it, even I went back there for the first time in 25 years back in April of last year. 
And I told my mom, I said, it's really strange. But to me, I don't think of Riverside as home other than the fact that you guys live here. So much so that literally when my, my teacher asked, where do you want to go for dinner? I said, you know, there's this place called the Chicken Oil Company where my parents used to take us when we first moved here. Let's have dinner there. And it, it was such a strange thing. But I, I wonder, what is the impact of that going into adult life on all our other relationships? Because I feel like that, you know, I've had friendships that um, many of my closest friendships have formed much later in my life. Mm. Well, but what I take away from that, though, is that you were fortunate to have a period in your life where you felt really connected and at home and known, I think, if I can presume that that's what you're describing, that you felt a piece of it, a part of this place, and you were excited about your life there and the prospects for it. And and then when that got changed, you know, you that's when you suffered. And I, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. Let me just, let's just be clear here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I, but you know, I do research a lot of this and talk to a lot of, of experts on all different levels. And so I think it is critical to have had a place where you feel connected and a time where you feel connected, even if you don't get to sustain it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And that shared history and that, that the time that you will have spent with those kids and teachers, it sounds like, um, is you, well, first of all, you put in a lot of hours with them. And, uh, as is clear in the book, time has an effect on, on friendship, right? The more time you put in with people, the more connected you feel. And then that shared history is something that we really cherish in our relationships. Um, so maybe you've been, looking for ways to feel connected in the same way that you were in Texas in Mm -hmm. the later parts of your life. Uh, But you have done it. (laughs) So to have done it once is significant because there are some people, you know, who never feel connected and never have that, that place where it feels like home. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, when we lived in Hong Kong, it was instructive because I knew I loved living in Brooklyn, but in a way, what living in Hong Kong did was show me just how much I felt connected in Brooklyn and how at home I felt and how much those were my people. <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't, it's maybe I took it for granted a little bit before I left. I'm not sure. Um, but for sh- after that, I did not. Um, now I had the luxury of being an adult and making decisions then about where I stayed or, or went, you know, which kids can't yeah. do, but well, I mean, that that raises actually a question about, you know, adult friendships. I, you know, I always jokingly say, I don't think it's a coincidence that I've built a platform that ensures that I never stop meeting new people. Uh, uh-huh. Like, maybe that's my Freudian way of expressing myself with this career <laughs> as a podcast. <laughs> like, you know, seven, eight hundred interviews later, like one thing I know is I'll never stop meeting new people. But, um, you know, one thing you said is that, you know, bottom line, we have a biological need for connection that must be met to have basic health and well-being. And the reason I'm curious about, you know, forming friendships as an adult is based on your experience in Hong Kong. And also, I finished graduate school in 2009, which is a terrible time to get out. I ended up living at my parents' house for the better part of probably seven or eight years. Funny enough, I met that person who was my best friend during that time. But then I moved to San Diego uh, at 38 years old, which is a really strange time to get out and try to build a social circle from scratch. Mm. So what has your work shown about adult friendships? Because I ultimately ended up leaving San Diego. Because I was so depressed there and so lonely. Really? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I, um, what I have found about adult friendships, I mean, first of all, 
it absolutely is possible to make friends at all parts of life, right? At all moments in life. And I sometimes I fear that we psych ourselves out or it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when we say, oh, it's so hard to make friends in adulthood. But that's it. It is. <laughs> it is harder. It is harder than it is. What, what we're doing is comparing it to childhood and adolescence when you are and even college, you're so surrounded by people who are the same age and you are, and have by dint of the fact that you're all in the same place, you have some similarities. You, you're already spending a lot of time together. I mean, similarity and proximity, shared interests, shared worldview, all those things come into what makes friendship work. And I mean, one of the things I say is I feel that friendship is has a chemistry to it, just like romance does. So, you know, you've you've meet people sometimes where you think, oh, I really like this person. We could be friends or that's sometimes shorthand when my friends and I talk about somebody else we met and say we could be friends with her. <laughs> she's which means she seems like us. she seems to see the world we do. She's got the similar sense of humor or something like that. And so. Adults are doing that too, but adults have a couple of disadvantages. The, and one, I already referred to this, one is time. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really true that when you're an adult, you're just much busier in a different way, or you have different responsibilities. The responsibilities you have are don't have friends built into them the way they do in school. When you're in school, your friends are there with you in class all day long on the sports field or in the band or on the theater stage or whatever it is, you know, in the computer science lab, whatever it is that's your jam when you're a kid, you are likely to have friends or potential friends there with you, right? Mm. In adulthood, you don't have, you just don't have the same amount of time with people who are the same age or have the same sort of inclinations and interests automatically. I mean, if you're you have colleagues at work. If you work, I mean, I happen to work from home, so I really have to work for it, right? <laughs> to, uh, to find people to hang out with. Uh, but if you work in an office, which most people do, you will meet people there and lots of people make friends. In fact, my, one of my very closest friends in adult life is someone that I met through work. And now we've been friends for 25 years and we're still very, very close. But so people make friends at work. They make friends through their interests, but adults don't have anywhere near as much time as kids do. And we're always comparing how it is to make friends as an adult with how it was to make friends when we were younger. And it was mm -hmm. just felt easier. It's kind of handed to you on a plate in a way. And then the second thing in adulthood is that you have to make yourself vulnerable usually to, uh, to go out in the world, especially if you move to a new place like you, if you move to San Diego at 38, where you know no one, you have to put yourself in places and with people that could become friends. And you have to do that at the beginning when you don't actually know them. And they already have their lives kind of set up, right? And so... Yeah. That is one of the big problems is that by the time you're an adult, you've, you've kind of got the circles of friendship could be filled in your life, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and time is a factor there too, not only because you need the time to get to know people, but because people have such limited time, they're going to spend it on the people they already know often. And, yeah. you know, that's a problem. But, but what I do, I like to encourage people as adults to, 
I don't know, be maybe clear-eyed about what's required, but also optimistic about the possibilities if you are rec- if you recognize that you have to put in the time and you have to make yourself a little vulnerable, you need the motivation to go out and try. And most of us, even the most introverted, you know, we often think we want to sit home because it's too hard to go out and try to meet new people, but often we're glad that we did when we do go out, right? And so that's an important thing. Also, psychologists have discovered something called the liking gap, which is that we often assume when we meet new people that they don't like us as much as they turn, it turns out they do. <laughs> did, mm. did you follow that? So we, yeah. we should give ourselves the benefit of the doubt because it turns out that generally when people meet new people, they like them fine. Um, I mean, mm. obviously there are differences, but so we, a lot of us are so, um, sensitive, right? And worried that people don't like us or that we said the wrong thing or that we talked too much or that we talked too little <laughs> or that we were too loud or too quiet or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and it's true that you're not going to click with everybody. I mean, you really do, um, especially in adulthood, your identity is more formed. Your, the way you see the world is more formed. Your interests are more formed and you're, it makes sense that you're going to be drawn to people who are more like you. And it may be that in a place like San Diego, you just didn't find that many sort of like-minded souls. I don't know. Was that what was, I'm sure you went out and tried. You sound like the kind of person who would have gone out and tried. Absolutely. So uh, let me give you a bit more context. I mean, I think that this is something really interesting that you said, and this is one of the things that, you know, I I do want to come back to middle school and and those friendships because like, that's another clusterfuck of an experience for childhood <laughs> that I would never want to experience again. But you say the 30s are sometimes described as the decade where friendship goes to die, killed off by marriage, yeah. children, jobs, relocating, mismatched friendships. One has kids, the other doesn't. And this can be especially hard to sustain. And so when I got to San Diego, most of my good friends were in the kinds of relationships where they were joined at the hip, which means they only hung out with each other. Um, mm-hmm. One of my best, you know, closest friends, anytime he called me on a Friday night, I'd be like, oh, your wife is out of town, isn't she? Uh, and, you know, he was my business partner for years. So I, I always kind of found that fascinating. I was like, wait a minute. And what I started to realize is I'm seeing my friends in Colorado more often than I see the people who live two exits down from me. Oh, right. And so what I wonder, and then there's another friend who I was extremely close to in my early 20s. He lived with another one of my friends. I mean, we pretty much spent every weekend together. Then he moved to New York, um, you know, ended up getting a really high profile job. And I, to this day, have never been able to understand what happened to our friendship, but it went from Mm. somebody who would return calls to somebody who basically sends me one of his stupid Christmas cards every year. Um, And, you know, I might get an occasional email and it's and even when we have met, it's not as if anything has changed. We're still on good terms, but there's at a certain point I realized, wow, there's no no reciprocal effort here to maintain this friendship. Um, What happens in situations like why do things like that happen? And uh, how do you explain the fact that, you know, like, I mean, I think that, you know, what you said about, you know, sort of mismatched friendships probably explains a lot of my experience in San Diego. But the funny thing is, I have similar situations here where I have a friend who just had a baby. But you know what? He makes the time to see us, regardless of having a, a newborn. Right. And that is the really important difference is that your friend there with the baby has is making it a priority and is kind of clear eyed about if I want this friendship, you know, to put time into this friendship, I have to make time. Um, And, you know, it isn't, it might not be as easy to just hang out in the casual way we did before he had a kid. And so um, 
the friend who moved across the country, it's so hard to say why these things happen, of course, because people, but distance has a lot to do with it. It's just much harder to maintain a relationship when people move further apart, but it's not impossible. So it really depends on motivation again and, uh, and how, how much it matters and how I think what does happen is, you know, to be, to be generous, we'll say that people get busy and then they get caught up with the new people in their life or their work and, and the longer things go when they haven't seen someone, um, the less connected they feel, the less up on the day to day of their life that person is. Um, and so it's natural that it, f- that it can fade away sometimes. And it's not actually the end of the world. This is one of the things I think is important. So when you said that it didn't feel reciprocated in the same way, that's the critical juncture where you, you can say to yourself, Maybe this friend isn't, this friendship isn't sustaining me in the same way. And I, and I'm going to let it go or I'm going to shuffle. I, the analogy I like to use is that if you think of your friends, as you've seen in the book of, you know, concentric circles, the people closest to you and then a little further out, a little further out. When you have a friend like that, it doesn't mean that you have to not be friends with them anymore, but you kind of shuffle the furniture of your friendship to an outer room, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And say, this person is a little bit less um, central in my life. And what really matters for your health and well-being is that you have a core group in the center. Most of us, mm-hmm. it's an average of just four people, right? So it's not a lot. And that can include family and friends. Uh, and and as long as you have, who's in that group does change over time. but it and maybe it changes more than we think um i mean one of the analogies or one of the facts that i came across in the reporting back to middle school was the fact that in the united states anyway where most people are going into a new school in 6th grade in middle school that friends two thirds of 6th graders change friends between september and june two thirds right <laughs> it's just such a time of churn and and I've come to think that, that that probably, and this is just me speculating, nobody's done the science, but that that might be a metaphor for what the trajectory of our adult lives look like from the start mm-hmm. to the finish. You know, maybe you hang on to a handful of the same friends. A lot of the others come in and out um, for periods of time, depending on where you are and how you spend time together. But that doesn't mean that those aren't intense relationships and that they're not giving you important things, but it doesn't. Sometimes I think that we, we um, worry more about, I mean, we do, we get very upset about the relationships that disappear, especially when it feels uneven in terms of who wanted the relationship to last more. uh, Right. But, um, but a friendship. So I'm sure you, you must know this cold since you've read the book so carefully, which I so appreciate, but, one of the things I think is really interesting about this new science of friendship is that it did finally allow for a clearer, simpler definition of friendship, because friendship is one of these things we we all think we know it so well, it's so familiar that we don't actually 
or, you know, we take it for granted. It's, it's there in plain sight, but it turns out that people have very different definitions um, or bring up different things when you ask them what friendship is. And it's kind of squishy in a way um, because it doesn't have the legal and institutional parameters that other kinds of relationships do where you get married or you're biologically related. Um, but so in evolutionary biology and primatology, and there's echoes of it in anthropology and different different fields of science, the same themes come up all the time. So friendships are long-lasting relationships generally, right? So there does have to be, it's a stable, reliable presence in your life, that person. Um, then they're positive. The relationships are positive. So they make you feel good, right? It's friendships that make you feel bad <laughs> and that are draining and demanding are really not good for you. And then the third thing is that they're reciprocal and that they're cooperative. And that's exactly what happened when your friend moved to New York. You know, you lost that piece of it. Um, yeah. And what I think is important is for people to keep in mind all of those parts. And I know it might sound like I'm, I'm, conf I'm sort of contradicting myself when I say that friendships are long lasting, but that they don't have to be the same people forever. They are long lasting though, in that like maybe the person you were closest to in your twenties is not the person you're closest to in your forties, but that doesn't mean that the person you're closest to in your forties is somebody that you've just met necessarily, right? Usually there's no. been some time invested in that new relationship too. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns, but a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It was funny because I was talking to the old roommate I lived with also in San Francisco at the time, and it was at my sister's wedding reception, and she said, you wouldn't invite him to your wedding? I said, it's not that I wouldn't invite him. I don't think he'd come. And she's uh-huh. like, wow. Um, but before we go back to middle school, there are two things here that I wanted to ask you about. You open the Circle of Friendship chapter with this really beautiful story uh, about your roommate. And one, I, could, I was wondering if you could share that story, but also, you know, talk to us about what has allowed you to sustain that kind of a friendship for such a long time. Well, that's so the story is that my roommate in college was um, somebody named Sarah. And we were randomly placed together the first year with six other women. So in a suite of eight. Um, and we didn't really spend much time talking to each other on the first day, but we always joke that we were friends from day two, <laughs> not day one, but day two. And, uh, I can't actually really remember how well, I remember that we sat in the living, you know, the living room of our suite that we were all in and we were joking about something and laughing and just started laughing together in the way that you do with somebody you just meet. And then we started going to the parties together and things like that. And we, ended up being inseparable, really. We lived together for three out of the four years of college, um, and she was the maid of honor at my wedding. And that first year, um, in first year of college, when it got to be Christmas, I, um, I was shopping for present for, you know, I was out with my dad doing some Christmas shopping and we were in a department store in Philadelphia where I lived, where I had grown up and my dad was not much of a shopper. That's why he had me with him <laughs> to help pick out some things for my mom and others. And, uh, but I said, you know, dad, I want to get something for Sarah. And my nickname for her was Ted. And so I had this, I don't know, idea that I would get her a teddy bear. Um, and my dad helped me pick out. We went to the toy department of this department store, which was a thing back then. There's not so many department stores with toys, <laughs> yeah. toy, toy areas anymore, but they had that then. And, uh, he helped me pick out. The softest, fluffiest, most sort of delightful teddy bear in the place. And he hugged them himself. And that was very unlike my dad. He was not a, I mean, he, he hugged me plenty, but he was not a particularly, um, I don't know, sentimental person, but he hugged, he hugged this teddy bear and decided that he thought that this one was the one. So I gave her that gift and I told her the story that of my dad being involved in it. And she always really, she loved my dad and she loved that he had helped pick out this bear and she kept the bear on her bed all through college. And years later, when we were 31, 
And my dad died suddenly. He dropped dead of a heart attack while he was on vacation. And, um, and it was a huge shock to everyone. He was 67, which is not young, but not old either. It was a whole lot sooner than anybody expected. And so my, you know, it, it was a shock for me. But what was amazing to me, what really surprised me was that so many of my friends came from all over the world not necessarily for my father, but for me to honor this, this massive disruption in my life. And, and one of the friends who came was Sarah and she brought back that teddy bear and she gave it to me as a gift in a quiet moment after the service. And she said, I think you should have this now. And it was very emotional, <laughs> very um, special. And I still have the teddy bear. Uh, and so 20 years later, I still have the teddy bear. I gave him to my boys. And uh, I always knew that this was the teddy bear that my father had hugged for Sarah. So that and what I discovered is that in that time, Sarah and I had, we had kind of hit all of the things that you were supposed to do with a friendship where, you know, you make each other feel good. You are there for each other in times of need. She actually lost her sister very young. Her sister died in her thirties and I went to that funeral and I was in her wedding and we tried to be there for each other. And it turns out actually that anthropologists find that gift giving is another piece. So it's one piece that the animal kingdom doesn't do, but humans um, gift giving is a real theme in friendship in many, many cultures across the world. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, that seems a little shallow. <laughs> why are we all, why do we care about getting gifts from our friends? But it turned out that it's about acknowledging the value of the relationship. And that's what Sarah was doing when she gave me back that bear, you know, saying, you matter to me. This is important. And, um, this is something that we shared. And it was, it was I, one of the best gifts I ever got. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let's go back to, to middle school. We have a lot of parents listening to this. I know you have three boys. So yes. to me, this is one of those experiences that is fascinating that I would never want to relive or wish upon <laughs> anybody. Like I think if you talk to anybody, it was like, you know, if there's one part of your life you could skip, it would be, you know, <clears throat> being a teenager uh, because you turn into the most awful human being on the planet and your parents mm -hmm. are the worst people that ever, you know, you don't understand yes. why. Uh, but I think that you open this by saying, you know, the ability to make and keep even one close friend has been as seen as vital to children's well-being for more than half a century. And yet nobody teaches you anything about this. Uh, like nobody teaches you the skill of making friends. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Van Wilder, but it's no. kind of a hilarious movie about a guy who spends 10 years in college. And the thing that's struck me about that movie was that instead of like, you know, being part of a popular clique or a jocks like he literally is friends with every group he could possibly think of on campus, like the biggest nerds on campus, the swim team, you know, the Hillel house. And I remember watching that thinking, damn, if I went back to college, that is how I would approach my social life. Uh, <laughs> literally, you're in an environment where people are just open. But I didn't know that. I know that at 40. And yeah. know, now I understand that. So I wonder one you know, what would you tell parents who are listening? But I, I also wonder how has it played, how have the social lives of your boys played out? Um, and what have you learned from watching them in these years? Well, let's see. Let me start with what I would tell parents, though, because I do think that this is, it is a critical thing that you're raising is that we 
I think that the ability, right, not just to have one friend is essential, but also that the ability to make and maintain friends is one of the most important skills a kid can develop for their for their lifetime, because friendship is a lifelong endeavor and it will have a real impact on how long they live, how healthy they are, how happy they are. And yet we sometimes, of course, parents worry about when their kids don't seem to have any friends, uh, but they, but mostly we do not, we are not nearly as explicit as we should be to kids about the importance of friendship and the importance of being a good friend. And and yes, exactly as you say, there, we're rarely sort of talking about what those skills look like and, and all, or we kind of assume that kids can just do it. <laughs> um, and we don't, and we don't help to teach them. And it isn't so simple. It's complicated and they do need teaching. They need explicit, um, explicit, they need explicit help in figuring out how to be a good friend and how to think about what good friends look like in return to you. And, um, and the other thing that parents need to do. So instead of, instead of just delivering messages about achievement all the time, which is often what parents are doing, we need to at least half the time be talking about, you know, the achievement of making good friends and being a good friend. Um, the second thing is that parents need to model that friendship is important. And that means not giving up all of your time, every minute of your time for your kids or even your spouse or, you know, um, but saying sometimes I'm spending time with my friends now because this is important for me. And I don't know that we do that very much. Um, or if we do it, we're not framing it in that way so that our kids understand that we are sending a signal about what's important. And let me be clear. You need to be present for your kids. <laughs> I'm not yeah. saying that you shouldn't, but I do think that I, in this era of intensely scheduled childhoods and all of this, that parents too often are so absorbed in that, that they are so afraid of hiring a babysitter or so afraid of, I don't know, their kid missing whatever event it is that they don't always um, make any time for their own friendships. And that's a mistake. Yeah. Um, now, you asked about my boys. Uh, uh -huh. So they are now 21, 18, and the youngest will be 17 on Saturday as we're recording this. <laughs> so he's 16 still today. Um, and so they are past middle school. They're into high school and college. Um, and they, we, um, let's see, the oldest one has an a very, very dear friend uh, who has been his best friend from the age of four. And now they're 21 and they're still best friends. In fact, that friend is here with us in our social isolation at our farm in central New York. <laughs> um, and they have both been the kind of kids who um, they were friends all through middle school. They had a very healthy, happy friendship and it was a lovely thing to watch because they had other friends, but they could keep coming back to each other. Now, middle school was when 
for that oldest son, that was when we lived in Hong Kong and that was difficult for him. Um, and yeah. when we got back to Brooklyn and he was able to be with his friend Christian again, it was just, it was just sort of a beautiful thing to watch. He just, he would just beam at me when Christian would have been over and he'd say, oh, this is so much better. <laughs> um, but the other two um, had more, have had more larger groups of friends. And, and so Matthew, the middle son, who's now 18, was, um, he we moved him for fourth and fifth grade to Hong Kong. And what was interesting was that the friends he was closest to when he left were not the kids that he ended up really being friends with when he got back. Um, mm. It changed entirely. And I think that was difficult for him. And he still sometimes says, gee, I really wonder what happened there. But one thing that happened is that one of the kids switched schools within New York City. And then the other kid became someone who it turned out actually, and this is the kind of lesson that kids should learn is that this kid, although he was really lovely to Matthew, turned out to be kind of a jerk to other other kids. And, you know, so there was tension in the group, ah, middle school, tension in the group, imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this kid was kind of nasty. And when Maddie realized that, I think he he said, you know, I'm not sure I'm down with that. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to be friends, even though they had been so close when they were really young. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to sacrifice his other friends for that relationship. Um, I'm not sure how it would have been if we hadn't gone away and they had all stayed, you know, in the same place. But so, and then my youngest son, Alex, is deaf and uses a cochlear implant and a hearing aid. And so he, but he's amazing to me because he operates in this hearing school really, really well. And he's very popular, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but he has a, he's an athlete. And so, you know, he's one of these kids where he hangs out a lot with all the other basketball players. Um, and that's just kind of a normal way that it goes. But I think it's one of the things that gives kids is just a place where they fit in and where they're part of a group. Right. And it's, yeah. it's natural that then those become tight friendships often. And he has really benefited from that. Mm. So, you know, this actually makes me wonder <clears throat> a, a couple of different things. Um, one is, you know, what is the impact of birth order mm. on all of this? Because I know from reading later in the book, you mentioned that you yourself were a twin. Yes. Uh, and I wonder like how that, you know, if, one, if you have other siblings, but also how that affects the dynamic. The other thing I wonder is uh, how this plays out culturally, because, you know, if you're the, the child of Indian immigrants, any, you know, immigrant child will tell you this, that the first kid is the experiment and then your parents fix everything they fucked up on you, which, <laughs> uh, which is my experience. Like my sister got to do things in high school that I would have probably been basically grounded for the rest of high school for. Right. She came home from college one weekend and she invited a few people to the house and something like 150 people showed up uh, because word spread and people were smoking pot in the backyard and all this oh, stuff. My. And she told my parents, go upstairs, I'll take care of this. And then she'll be back to Berkeley on Sunday. If that had happened <laughs> with me, they would have been like, that's it. You're never leaving this house again. Uh, right, right. So, oh, that's funny. Yeah, so the birth order and, and culture, I wonder um, how, how this differs across cultures. Because I, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at immigrant parents, the way that they treat their kids forming friends, immigrant parents are obsessed with their kids' achievements. Yes. Yes. So I guess birth order and culture, like what role do those play in, in this ability to form friendships? Mm. Well, I think both are important, although I think 
it's also true that birth order. Mm, so in my family, for instance, my oldest is the was the shyest growing up. And then the second one was Mr. Mr. Outgoing and funny personality, you know, and uh, and probably that had something to do with being second, <laughs> it, it would seem. Um, but uh, but I sometimes I think that the science of birth order is not as straightforward as everybody likes to think. You know, it's one of these things where we all think we understand. Oh, yes. Well, firstborn this, that. But it is true that parents kind of pour all kinds of expectations for achievement into the oldest because it's their first go at it. Right. And <laughs> they're trying really hard to get it right. I remember there being a really funny joke that about how, you know, let's say you have uh if you give your kid a pacifier, I mean, that, that was the way the joke went. But like for the first one, if they dropped it on the ground, you know, you re-sterilize it and you have them all laid out. You do all this stuff and you, you know, for the second one, you run it under the water and you pop it back in their mouth. For the third one, you're like, eh, <laughs> here you go. Yeah. Fell on the ground, five second rule, you're fine. You know, and uh, if people just chill out more as their kids get younger uh, or as they have more kids. And um but I also think that what is really important in this is the sibling relationships and how those work. Um, mm. And so in my house, because we had three boys, you know, people say, oh, boys are like this. But I was always able to see that I had three kids who were all boys, but were very different um, mm. in their personalities. And you don't always, I think you attribute to gender sometimes some things that are in fact personality. Um Although, of course, gender can, comes into it. But, um, but so they were always quite close, the three of them, and they always really liked playing together. And I did feel that it was one of the things that helped my youngest when he was deaf and learning to talk late with his technology, that he had these two talkative brothers who would play with him and lead the way. And, and I think that was made for a very different experience from a kid who is maybe the firstborn who's deaf and doesn't have that, doesn't have those kids, yeah. those older kids sort of modeling things and, and playing with him too, teaching him how to be social. Cause that's what kids do for each other is they, they teach each other how to be friends in a way that parents cannot do entirely, right? Your parent sets you on the path to being social. They get your social brain primed. But then you need time with peers to get all the good stuff about learning trust and loyalty and cooperation and how to give support, not just to get support, which is something you can't really do with your parents, um, but also the bad stuff, right? <laughs> Kids need sometimes to learn how to work stuff out amongst themselves. And um, I mean, Piaget, um, when he was writing about child development, he did a really interesting study watching kids play marbles, I think it was, on the streets of Vienna. And he studied how they made up the rules amongst themselves and how much they got from that, right? And how the rules became more complicated as the kids got older. But they had to learn about fairness and they punished transgressors and they did all kinds of, uh, you know, the kids themselves worked it out. And so there's something that kids get and siblings do that sometimes. But of course, there can be an, a hierarchy among siblings that there isn't always among peers. Um and let's see, you asked about birth order. I forget the other. The other one was about culture. Oh, um, culture. Yeah. Looks across different cultures. Yeah. So, well, culture is a really important part of friendship at all ages. And the thing that's interesting is just that we always thought friendship was all about culture. 
And now, as my book makes clear, we know that there is a biology to friendship. There's an evolutionary story to friendship, but that doesn't mean that there isn't also a cultural overlay, right? And so the expectations, so for instance, in immigrant Asian families, um, famously, the expectations are about achievement and much less about friendship. Um, that's less true in some other, um, you know, there are other, I don't know, I mean, a stereotype, but let's say upper middle class um, uh, moms that I can think of who all they care about is, you know, that their kid is happy and socially adjusted and, you know, that everybody gets a trophy <laughs> and uh, all that yeah. kind of stuff, which is a different kind of culture and a different le level of expectation and overlay. And, uh, and so whatever it is that kids grow up with in their, you know, um, but is, is, is going to make a difference, uh, and where they socialize. If, if they socialize in a, if they're in a school where bullying is, is sort of allowed, um, or is at least not noticed, um, you know, or a school that has more cruelty in it. And there are, alas, there are schools like that. That culture is going to affect how those kids grow up and how they think about friendship and what they, what their expectations are for how other kids are going to treat each other. Um, so this is part of why I think it's really important for parents to be mindful about this. I mean, now let me be clear. Parents cannot insert themselves into their kids' social lives. <laughs> That's pretty much the kiss of death, right? Your yeah. kids do not want you to tell them, you know, how to be friends, who to be friends with. But I, so I'm talking more abstractly. I think that, mm -hmm. um, like one of the things I used to say to my boys when they were growing up was that we always had sort of a little bit of a joke, but I meant it seriously was that first of all, the most important set of rules were safety rules. The second most important set of rules, second most important rules were kindness rules. And then we talked about, okay, I know you, I don't believe that any of you are ever the kid who is being directly mean or bullying, but are you ever the kid who stands up for the kid who's being bullied? Because that is the hardest thing to do, right? To go yeah. against the group and to stand up. And I don't know if there's very, I'm not necessarily you know, singing my own praises. And I had reasons from my own childhood experience for bringing this up. But I, um, I think that not that many parents talk about that and about what that takes and, and how to have the courage to do that and why it's important and why it matters. Hmm. Well, it, it's funny to hear you talk about sort of, you know, the, the, you know, who we gravitate towards, because like, even at Berkeley, I realized the bulk of my friends were Indian. And I was like, oh, we have this like very, very deep cultural thing in common. Yes. Uh, I think that just makes an instant bond very easy. So well, you can I skip over Sorry, a lot. Well, when you yeah. that, you know, there's a whole lot that's understood. <laughs> so yeah. you skip over a lot of the details. You don't have totally. to get to know that, you know, you, you have shorthand and that mm -hmm. helps you get closer faster. That's, that's really what's going on there, I think. Yeah. So I want to go back to the circle of friendship thing. There's something I forgot to ask you about, and this is about gender. Uh, you mm -hmm. said that men are more likely to build relationships that focus on what friends can do for them, what opportunities they can open, what kind of resources they can provide. Women, on the other hand, are more likely to expect their closest friends to offer emotional nourishment and support. And when I read that, because I was going back through the book this morning to figure out you know, where I didn't you know, finish getting as many notes as I wanted, where my mind went to was the Harry Met Sally scene um, <laughs> immediately. And then I thought about all the comedians. I, I don't remember who it was. Some comedian might have been Chris Rock, Chris Rock, who said, he's like, you know, men and women are not friends. He's like, your female friends are people that you wanted to sleep with, but you just screwed up somehow. Uh, <laughs> so I figured, I was like, okay, you wrote a book on friendship. You of all people, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, is this 
how do <laughs> is there any grain of truth to what these comedians say? Um, well, I, you know, there's, of course, there is sexual tension between lots of men and women. Um, and that's always a question, but I mean, I, I have many male friends. Now I'm married for a very long time. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that makes it simpler. Um, but I have, you know, I have good male friends that I feel close to, um, and that I think feel close to me. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not impossible for men and women to be friends. I mean, so let's start there because some people just act like it is and, and it Mm -hmm. isn't. Uh, and just like, um, you know, gay men can be friends without falling in love with everybody or, or, you know, wanting to sleep with everybody. It's, uh, it's, so I, you know, I, I disagree with that, but it is, the problem, of course, is whether it's shared, right. whether the, you know, level of interest is shared, right? And, um, uh-huh. and it is true that men are often more sexualized or more, <laughs> I think men, here's where the culture comes into it. Yeah. Men have been taught that they can't, you know, that they should want to sleep with every woman that they met, that they meet, mm-hmm. or might have the opportunity to sleep with. And if you become friends with someone, then you're going to think, well, okay, <laughs> where's yeah. this going? Right. Um, and women are just less likely to do that, I think. And so, um, I, you know, I think that's part of it, uh, is it, it is true. And, and also, um, you know, the kids, gender is interesting because psychologists, when they look at it, they do really find that when kids are young, there is this moment in elementary school where the boys pair off with the boys and the girls with the girls. And it happens. There's a cultural overlay, but it seems to be more than that. Right. And so mm-hmm. clearly there is something about just sort of a gender. There's a similarity in gender. And, and as we know, as more clearly than ever now, there's a big continuum for how people, you know, what gender means. And, and that's interesting. And I actually find that the generation that's growing up now um, with, with gender, understanding gender as a more fluid concept, um, they, they do do things a little differently. And it's sometimes, but there's still, there's this among men there. What I think is interesting is this desire to be close and to express that how much you care about people, but also still a fear of being seen to be gay, even mm-hmm. if you're not homophobic. So there's that hashtag not homo. Have you seen that? <laughs> I think I that's what, that. or hashtag no homo, something like that. No homo or not homo. I forget. Um, but apparently, this is something that men who are very enlightened put when they write a text to a friend or something, and they say you know, dude, I love you. <laughs> they'll, but at the end they'll yeah. go hashtag not homo, <laughs> no homo. Um, and so it's like a, it's this signaling thing that men feel they have to do if they're mm. being, um, you know, intimate or, or affectionate or um, caring. And yeah. I wish that that were not the case. I mean, I'm you, maybe you can speak to this better than I can, but I, um, and that's not the question you're asking exactly, but I, yeah, well, it really depends on the friends. It's, it's kind of funny. We're talking about this in the context of gender, because I think if I ask any of my male friends and I would include myself in this, almost any one of us, if we find somebody like, uh, you know, a female attractive and we know she's single, <laughs> like your, your, your mind is okay. I hope we don't become friends. It's like no guy <laughs> wants to end up in the friend zone. You know? like, the, the, the ongoing joke. It's like, no, right. like, I kind of right. would much rather sleep with you than be friends with you. Right. Um, and you know, but the thing, the funny thing is it kind of, like you said, you know, you're married, like I have female friends who are married, have been married for years. 
that thought never crosses my mind if I know they're not an option. Which is instructive because, you know, you're cl- you're capable, capable of being friends with those women. Um, yeah. And it's if you take it off the table, then it's, you know, it, it doesn't get in the way. So that's it's proving, I think, proving my point that it's possible for men and women mm-hmm. to be friends. But on the other hand, uh, I don't know if maybe <laughs> maybe we're proving both points here, because if there's yeah. even the least possibility of sex, right, um, uh, are, you're saying that the men are that's where their heads are going to go. Uh, I, I would, you know, I'd be I'd let my let, let our listeners write in and tell us if they think that's true. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let's do this. I think I want I don't want to leave this conversation without talking about what is probably one of the most important subjects, given the current situation we're in. And, you know, you dedicated a lot of this book to the concepts of digital friendship and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was fascinating. Like I literally was making a note of all the people I wanted to interview that you mentioned in your book and the woman who literally went and met all of her Facebook friends. Was yeah. Like, okay, I have to talk to her. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you say that uh, real friendship hasn't changed much alive and well, even thriving in some senses. That said, we just have to make sure to make time for friendship in our busy lives. We would do well to remember how important face-to-face interaction is in cultivating and maintaining relationships. Proximity matters. And I was writing about this this morning because I'm trying to basically write a new book called Portfolio of Meaning. And I'm like, okay, social connection in general is one of the most important parts of our lives if we're going to be happy. And I started writing. I said, you know, like I took antidepressants for three years, pretty much the entire time I lived in San Diego. And then I went to a surf camp in India where I was too exhausted uh, after each day because I was surfing and I was surrounded by people and I just forgot to take the medication. By the time I moved to Boulder with my roommate, who I mentioned to you because we became friends because of NBA 2K, I kicked the meds all together. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I was like, I wasn't depressed. I was lonely. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But we're in a situation now where, um, you know, my sister told me, she said, it's really good that you're living with Matt uh, because I think you would be losing your mind right now. Yeah. If you guys weren't together, that you guys all have each other, you know, we sit around and we're getting way too good at NBA 2K. That's problematic. <laughs> but I mean, given this context that we're dealing with in terms of the coronavirus and people, you know, being forced to interact with each other from behind screens, um, I mean, what is your take on all of this, especially as somebody who wrote a book about this very thing? What I think is really interesting now is how quickly we're rewriting the script here about so how social media works and how it connects us. And, you know, there was a lot of hysteria and concern about this pre-coronavirus uh, and not all unfounded, but but blown out of proportion. And that's one of the things that I write about in the book is that there's some new science that really makes clear that um, on a population level, you know, it's there's some negatives and there's some positives from social media when you're thinking about how it's affecting people's well-being, but that relationships come out to the to the good um, and that all of the effects are small and that they kind of cancel each other out, but that the biggest effect is positive and it's about relationships. So we started with that as the base. Then this happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so what I think a couple of the principles that we need to understand about healthy social media use and how it works with friendship, how it works to the good um, are still important. So one is that pre-coronavirus, what was true was that if you use social media as one more channel with which to connect uh, with your friends, then it strengthens those bonds. 
obviously now we don't have all those other channels. <laughs> uh, but what I think we're doing is using social media and digital technology as a stopgap, right? And the fact that we're also desperate to do it and that we're, you know, lighting up Zoom video conferencing with people that we never did that with before and all this stuff so that we can see their faces and we're sending each other, you know, people are being very, very creative about how they connect and the kinds of things they're, they're, well, they're creating routines for connecting through social media that we didn't have to have before. Um, and I think, you know, you have to argue that we're, that this is a good thing and that if we didn't have digital technology and social media in this moment, we would all be much more bereft. Um, and that's not yeah. to say that we're not, but you know, that this is easy. It's not, but it is, um, but it is kind of a lifeline for, for many people. The, the other, um, the other big question about social media in general was that, well, one thing that was true is that people with bigger online networks tended to have bigger offline networks too. So it was sort of a reflection of your, your, the way your social life looked. Um, and that our online lives do tend to mirror our offline lives. And I think we're not always as aware of that as we might be. And finally, I would just say that our, um, I'm still talking now about pre-coronavirus that one of the things that I object to is that I kind of realized that we lump in, we, we worry that Facebook and other things have devalued friendship um, because they use the word friend. But I noticed that we talk about actual friends and Facebook friends. I mean, the reason we have the term Facebook friend is to distinguish somebody yeah. who is just a Facebook friend from somebody <laughs> who is anything else, right? And um, who is more meaningful in your life. And and we're smarter. Like, we know the difference. And studies show that we know the difference. In fact, most people say that 30 to 40% of their Facebook friends are actual friends. And so we have to give ourselves a little bit more credit. Now, that was then. <laughs> now, as I said, we are using social media in this intense way because it's a lifeline and I'm really glad that we have it. The question is what's going to have to ha what's going to happen after this? Uh and I I'm maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's naive. I'm choosing to be optimistic because I feel that what I see happening is that people are understanding how critical their social relationships and connections and friendships were um, in a way and that they had been maybe taking them for granted. And then, you know, you don't appreciate what you have until you don't have it, right? Millions mm -hmm. of songs have been written <laughs> about many of song lyrics and, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Well, now we don't have our friends. They're gone. And, uh, and we miss them terribly. Um, just as an aside, I would like to point out Something I don't hear anybody else noticing, but I think it's significant is that teenagers who everybody was so worried didn't know how to have a relationship in person and that all they ever did was get on social media. They were in agony about not being physically with their friends, right? And and nobody gave them credit for that. Nobody said, except me, <laughs> I've been saying this from the start. I want credit. I've been saying, hey, look, you know, clearly they care about being with their friends in person. 
or they wouldn't be this upset, right? And um, they're also digital natives, though, in a way that a lot of adults are not. So that might end up being a protective factor for them because the rest of us have all had to learn how to use some technology that we mostly were not familiar with. I mean, as it happens, I used to use Zoom for, in my work quite a bit. So, no. you know, I was more familiar with it. And I'm sure you as a podcaster, you're familiar <laughs> right. with a lot of things, right? But not everybody had that advantage that we had. Um, I think that when we can interact with people in person again, we will fall into each other's arms with joy. <laughs> Having washed our hands, <laughs> I hope yeah. I hope that that habit um, sticks with us because apparently, have you heard that all other, there's other kinds of things that are way down like gastrointestinal disease and other things. I don't know. It may be that people are not going to the doctor or the hospital and it's not getting reported, but mm. I think the hand washing is helping. <laughs> um, but I think that what I hope happens is that this has really helped to clarify exactly what I had been saying before, that we we need to prioritize our friendship because it really matters. It's really important for our health. Um, nobody actually has been able to study very well how much uh, satisfaction social connection gives you versus, I mean, social media connection versus seeing people in person. What is yeah. important about face-to-face -face is that it so eye contact and being together and physical touch and all those things prime the social parts of our brain they get us ready to communicate there's an intensity to that kind of really bond and that time together that you can't recreate on the screen mm -hmm. it's still better though to have a relationship via social media than not at all right which is what we're faced with now. And so interestingly, a lot of the neuroscientists I've spoken with wanted to do that study, like to say, okay, if you get a certain amount, like, you know, well, let me tell you the story. So I just did a story last week. Um, a neuroscientist at MIT did this fascinating study, and it's the first time that anybody had actually shown this to be true. So in my book, I mentioned that psychologists I mentioned that psychologists have a longstanding theory that loneliness is like hunger and thirst. It's a physiological warning signal that you need to connect, just like you need to eat or you need to drink water. Um, and they thought that was true and it felt like it should be true. It felt, you know, intuitive and, uh, and elegant, which is one of scientists' favorite words, but nobody was really able to show it. Well, it turned out that researchers at MIT, believe it or not, three years ago started in on this project where they um, where they were trying to look at the part as sort of deep into the brain and compare hunger and loneliness in that deep part of the brain. And they succeeded in doing it. And they have just published a preliminary report. So it hasn't been peer reviewed, but their preprint was literally came out in the middle of March, just as this coronavirus and social isolation all sort of hit the United States. So their timing was impeccable, but it was completely by accident. <laughs> they had already been working on this, but they showed that it is true that loneliness looks like hunger deep in the brain. Um, what they wanted to do they, and they submitted three years in a row an additional grant to try to do the study that then said, and how much does social media digital connection satisfy that loneliness versus time in person? And nobody ever would give them the money to do it. <laughs> mm. And yet it's the question that we all want to know the answer to now. Um, 
what we think is that seeing somebody on Zoom does sort of make you feel connected a good you know if you see a good friend on zoom like my college friends have been having zoom video conference check-ins where we have a glass of wine together at night while we're all on zoom and and i think that you get some oxytocin boosts and dopamine and good you know good happiness hormones are sort of moving around in your body when you do that and that you feel connected to people and that that makes you feel better but nobody's really been able to actually do that study. So we can guess at what we think is happening when you do that, but we don't really know for sure. And this is, so what will be interesting is coming out of this coronavirus. uh, In addition, I hope to much more expenditure and preparation in public health, I hope, and I see already that um, researchers are doing all kinds of fascinating work to try to learn more about what we get from social media versus other ways of connecting because now that is the only way we can connect. I think it's fascinating that you brought up Zoom uh, and these video conferences because, uh, you know, we, we may be relatively close in age, but I remember when I was in college and I was in high school, the future of the telephone was the idea that you could see the other person's face on the other end of the phone. Like we were like, this is some back to the future stuff when we, we finally get to do that. Right. And what's funny is that that technology has been available for 10 years and we went from, you know, that being available to choosing text messages. Uh, right. in fact, you know, one of the characters in, in One Tree Hill once said, he said, can you imagine if um, voice had been invented after text? People would say, oh, my God, you can hear the person on the other end of the phone. Right, right. No, I know. I always find it funny how a lot of TV shows, they always have everybody doing video calls. And I'm thinking, people don't actually do that. <laughs> you know, it's um, but it uh, but yeah, for some reason it is. Now it has caught on and it is, I guess it is that sense that this is the only way we can do this. But the irony for me, and I hear this for other people as well, is that the people I'm doing Zoom with are not actually all people I would have seen in real life on a regular (laughs) basis. It's like my college friends who live all over the country and all over the world even. And, um, but it's turned out, so we had a WhatsApp thread going. But then, Mm -hmm. and then everybody was kind of on there talking about this. And then I said, well, we could do a Zoom. And so once we did that, everyone said, this is amazing. (laughs) And and it was like a bonus because then you were seeing people that you didn't normally see. Um, And so I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, I also find that we, I mean, there's a sort of parallel story there too, about like when I was growing up, parents were really worried about, kids uh, watching way too much TV. And also parents, if they had the resources, would end up getting a second phone line because the teenagers were always talking on the phone for hours and tying up the phone line, right? And so everybody complained about how much the kids were talking on the phone and how they were sitting on the couch and and like couch potatoes and watching TV. And so now... Uh, when they don't tie up the phone lines, we're complaining because they're not talking to each other, right? And we, um, and, and when they play video games, like some of the Wii, for instance, if you had Wii where it's physical, I mean, I grant, I grant you that most video games are not physical, but, um, some of them are, right? And that would be, should be like a parent's dream <laughs> come true compared to sitting on the couch watching television. Um, and they're doing it 
actually video games are incredibly social. Three quarters of kids are playing them with somebody else, either in the room or over the internet or on a phone line. Um, So that's an important thing. But, um, but I sort of think, you know, it's like, be careful what you wish for, right? Or we lose track of what we used to think was a bad thing. And, you know, we, um, I also have noticed, by the way, that for my kids, texting is synonymous with talking. So they'll say, I'll say, did you check with, you know, did you call so-and-so such and such a friend to ask about whatever the plan that they had? He's like, yeah, I talked to him and he said this. And then it turns out that they just meant texting means that <laughs> <Right>. was talking. Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost interchangeable for them. Right. And wow. adults have a much harder time seeing it that way. But, uh-huh. um, and there are limitations to texting. I'm not saying it's all great, but I also think that there's there's something about that. It's this fluidity of contact that kids have that, that, um, they don't, you know, they really are living what I was saying about how different channels of connecting, as long as you, you know, are connecting in multiple ways and you do see people in person some of the time, um, yeah. you know, those relationships are usually pretty strong. And for them, that's just how it works. They, you know, they text, they call some, they play video games and they, you know, and they, so my kids play video games with their cousins across the country, right? On, on, over the internet. And they spend far more time with them doing that than they had in the years before when that wasn't possible. Um, yeah. so I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling now. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating subject because I mean, even I remember when my parents found out, they're like, Hey, there's this thing called Zoom. I was like, Yeah, dad, I know what Zoom is. I use it all the time. <laughs> but yeah, you get an Indian family together and they've somehow replicated one of our dinner parties on Zoom where everybody just interrupts each other. Nobody seems to get that you can't do Zoom this way. Yeah. But there is something I think about seeing each other's faces, uh, that it just seems strange to me that like, when I look at what's happening now, to me, this is how we should have been using technology to communicate all along. Yes, mm-hmm. it's less efficient, but it's more intimate. Like, it makes me wonder why, you know, don't you and your college friends and my other college friends, like, why did it take a global pandemic for yeah, us to for recognize us to, it, to value and, this? I don't know. You know, yeah, it's, I mean, for me, I know that I just thought of Zoom as a professional tool, you know, and yeah. I, I don't know why um, that, why that was because, and I don't know, I always found FaceTime sort of, unsatisfying or maybe mm. I didn't think I looked very good on a FaceTime picture. <laughs> it's probably something, uh, something, yeah. uh, you know, vain like that. Uh, but it's, uh, I don't know. And then, um, and Marco Polo too has been, mm-hmm. do you use Marco Polo? So uh, my, my roommate has been using that, which has been interesting. He sends, you know, video messages to his parents. I think that that's, it's funny because you're, I think you're going to see one of my friends, you know, we actually did an episode about what uh, social distancing is teaching us about social connection and mm-hmm. people share their stories and, you know, <clears throat> you know, families being scattered across the world and people slowing down really. Uh, but you know, I, I think to me, like what I, I recognize is maybe this is how we should have been communicating all along the way we use technology. Um, it's just unfortunate that these are the circumstances that had to bring it about. Yeah. And I would say it is still important to say that it, that people do need to spend time together in person as well, yeah. obviously. Uh, and that, but I hope, I hope that we can take the best of this and mm-hmm. carry it forward, but also be reminded of how connecting with people is should be such a priority and that we should make time for it. What I think that the science of friendship really gives us is that, or knowing that there's this biology and evolution to it, evolutionary story to it, it gives us permission to hang out with our friends and make it a priority. It doesn't have to be a to-do. I mean, it's 
okay, yes, it should be on your to-do list the same way that going to the gym and, you know, eating vegetables. But, but what a wonderful thing that, that hanging out with your friends, <laughs> however yeah. you do it is, you know, is really good for you. And is, and so I think that that, should alleviate some of the guilt people sometimes feel like, oh, I want to go to dinner with so-and-so, but I need to finish this piece of work or, you know, I need to be with my kids or whatever it is. And um, I think I'd like to see more of, and I hope that the coronavirus experience, the pandemic and the social distancing drives home even more um, just how important it is to be together, to build those relationships, to put in the time and to prioritize your friends. Yeah. So there's two final questions I want to ask you. Mm -hmm. One is about the elderly because you finished the book talking about the elderly. And I, you know, I, I remember emailing one of our listeners who was, you know, 76 years old and I, I, I'd met him in New York multiple times and I was wondering, I was like, does this guy have any family or anything? And so I emailed him. He said, yeah, he's like, Shania, I have a roommate. Um, we laugh a lot, but you know, particularly now for the elderly, like many of the people that you write about, I would imagine they're very, very alone right now. <laughs> Yeah, I worry about that for sure, because a lot of them are less facile with te technology as well. And, uh, and they, you know, and the family members who were visiting, I mean, I haven't been able to go visit my mother in four weeks now. And, uh, and that's hard. Um, and so I, I worry about that. What I hope, um, I actually have a, uh, one of my good friends, she just bought and has sent to her elderly parents something called the grand pad. Have you heard about this? Mm -mm. So it's a, I, I, I don't know who makes it or whether it's like an iPad, but it's really simple and you can program it so that um, all somebody has to do is kind of like touch the screen. It should, you know, you, you preload it with the connections to the family members or friends, and then you can send it. So it's just technology made easy for the older the oldest generation where people have less familiarity and she's sending it, she's sending it to them. I can't report to you how well it's worked because <laughs> I think it hasn't reached Chicago yet, but, um, yeah. but there is technology designed to actually solve that, that problem too. Um, mm -hmm. But we should, I do think that people need to make it an extra concerted effort to reach out however you do it. And maybe it's just calling, right? Um, yeah. To older people who, especially who live alone, because that mm -hmm. has to be really hard right now. Yeah. Well, I, I know that, you know, you had talked about the very, the work that Teresa Seaman was doing, which I added her to my list of people that I needed to oh, talk good. to as well. Uh, but, you know, the other, so one, I, I wonder about that, you know, I mean, particularly because that's not accessible now. And then I know that, you know, you mentioned your mother, um, who you've referenced throughout the book. And I think the thing that struck me most, what you, you, you said was that a person with severe dementia is still alive, but the relationship that you had with them is not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that quote that you had from your mother's friend who said, I thought we would grow old together. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. Well, you know, the sad truth for my mother who has severe dementia is that this moment in time, um, is no different really from how her life was. I mean, her life was very constrained in that she doesn't go out much and she, you know, she, when people come to see her, she can't really have a conversation with them. And, uh, so, um, so yes, she has lost the ability to be social, which for her was a major part of who she was. It's part of the big 
tragedy. I mean, Alzheimer's is a tragedy across the board in so many ways, but she was such a social person and she loved to entertain. And as I say in the book, we we sort of joked that the entertaining gene seemed to be the last thing to go with her because she would, you know, be incapable of a conversation and yet turn to me suddenly and say, what are we making for dinner? <laughs> you know, for the group, thinking that she was entertaining everybody, um, even though she hadn't cooked a meal in years. Um, and uh, so it, um, you know, it, I take comfort from the fact that even though right now, for instance, I'm not really able to go see her, she, um, she doesn't honestly know that all that much about that I'm not there or she, it won't, it won't be meaningful that the weeks have gone by because, you know, it, it could have been yesterday and she'll think it was weeks or it could have been weeks and she'll think it was yesterday. So, um, there is that, I guess that's a, that's a comfort to me, but, um, but older people, first of all, one interesting thing is that older people do make new friends. Um, and you often see that when they, when people move into retirement communities. And that's one major reason to move into a retirement community is that there's just a much more active social scene usually than when people live alone. But many, many people prefer to stay in their own homes. And that's absolutely fine as long as they are working at having a social life. And it doesn't just because older people have fewer friends. So every, a lot of people worry about that. And it is true often that people have fewer friends, but sometimes it's intentional. It turns out that older people are more judicious about who they spend their time with, right? And they've gotten rid of some of those friends that they didn't want to, um, that who weren't feeding them or sustaining them anymore. Those relationships that, that weren't so great. They, they, they kind of, prune a little bit um, in a good way. But it's also true that when you retire, um, you need to make a point of actively working to replace workmates with playmates. Um, and the people who do that seem to do best at the end of life. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I think that the, I think, you know, and I'll bring us full circle here. I think the thing that fascinated me was that this is a matter of public policy in some countries. Uh, you know, when you said that the UK had a minister of loneliness, I thought, okay, yet another person I need to interview. Like what country <laughs> has a minister of loneliness? That's I know. Isn't that amazing? Heard. Right. Yeah. Well, it tells you the level of this problem. I mean, so this, what's striking is many people still think of loneliness as, well, okay, it's an emotion. It's not pleasant, but how big of a deal is it really? Well, it kills you, loneliness. It, it, it affects. So loneliness on the one hand and friendship on the other, two sides of the same coin. But so meaning your level of social connectedness and how satisfied you are by it affects your cardiovascular functioning, your immune functioning, your mental health, your cognitive health, your stress responses the rate at which your cells age and it affects your mortality and how long you live. And so I think that's pretty important. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, just, you know, a little bit, uh, but I, a really um, important thing in this is that for instance, in the immune system, um, well, they, the work they did in the immune system um, researchers figured out that, People who are really lonely are more susceptible to inflammation and to viral, um, viral infection, actually. And people who are more socially connected are let, you know, are more resilient when it comes to viruses and to, uh, and to inflammation. But the other thing is that that 
pattern and it has to do with the way genes in the immune system express themselves. So gene regulation. Um, and that pattern of immune system gene expression is seen, it turns out, not just in lonely people, but in people who've suffered enormous trauma or serious poverty and child soldiers in Africa and all kinds of things. And at first you could say, oh, well, then, you know, those things, those, those are the things that sound like they really matter, right? But loneliness physically is right up there. It's, it's, it has the same kind of response in your body that it triggers, which should tell us that it really, really matters. Yeah. Wow. Um, this has been just breathtaking and uh, thought provoking. Uh, so I have one last question for mm -hmm. you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, it sticks with you. It, it, it lives on. It's that kind of thing. Something that's unmistakable. I, I guess my first answer, I'll have to go with my first answer is something's unmistakable if you can't get it out of your head later and you, you keep coming back to it and it stands out. It has a soul, a personality. It's it's noticeable. I guess that's what I'm going to say. Wow. Um, well, like I said, this has been just breathtaking and eye opening and thought provoking. It's one of my. You know, your book is easily in my top five. Uh, of oh, entire well, I'm thrilled. And I read hundreds of books every year. Well, so. thank you. I'm so honored. Thank you so much. Um, where can people find out more about you, your work, and the book? Uh, well, I have a website, lydiadenworth.com. And that is kind of the funnel to all things. There's a newsletter that people can sign up for if they want to keep up to date on my work as a science journalist. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Lydia Denworth. And I'm on Facebook at Science Writer Lydia. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, did you know that every Sunday our community manager, Milena, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys.
and download your free copy.